Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. Was Jesus a wimp? If you're feeling uncomfortable right now, it's okay. The answer's going to be no. Just hang in there. It was my first year as an ordained minister, and I was feeling my way through a host of new discoveries. For the previous three years, I had read, studied, discussed, and written about the tools I'd need in parish ministry. And to be honest, as seminarians, people studying for the ordained ministry, we sat in school secretly believing we probably knew more than anyone who'd ever actually done the job anyway. Then I got to the parish, and it was so different. So often members of the church didn't seem to care about the things that I had studied and I thought they would care about so much, like a third-century theologian's take on a question regarding soteriology. And then people took things so seriously that I didn't think were even a big deal. In the first church that I served, there was a reredos behind the altar. Now, a reredos is simply a piece of furniture, normally being artistically decorated, sometimes ornately so, that stands behind the altar of the church. And in this case, it was decorative but also functional with several levels of shelves built into the piece. And upon these shelves sat several things, the cross, the flowers, and two sets of candles. Now, one set consisting of six candles is lit to signify that we're having a service. So anytime there's a service, those candles are lit. The other set of just two candles is lit to show that the service being held is the Eucharist, the blessing of the bread and wine as Jesus taught his disciples to do. Now, at this time, there were three priests on staff, and I was, as I already said, brand new. I was the newest, by far the least experienced. The senior priest, who's in charge of an Episcopal church, is given the title of rector. It's an English word. And at this particular church, the rector made the decision to move the Eucharist candles, meaning the set of two, to a different level than the other candles. I remember helping him move them on a Thursday afternoon, and as we moved them, he told me his rationale, which made sense to me, but was not hugely important because, after all, we're just talking about the placement of candles. Sunday came, and you would think, at least for a group of parishioners, a small group of the parishioners, you would think that he had espoused a desire to renounce the Christian faith. There were a few very angry people. And then after Sunday came, then the hostile letters began to flow in. Then someone began to sneak into the church after hours and switch the candles back from the way that the rector had placed them. Now, I tell you this story not to point to how horrible this church was. It was, and it still is, a fantastic group of people. My point is simply to show how conflict within a church is not always predictable for the clergy. All of the clergy, myself included, were blindsided by how something that was, to us, so seemingly inconsequential could become such a huge source of conflict. There were also those occasions that conflict arose over something that was not inconsequential. It just was that, as a clergy person, I found myself surprised that there was anyone within the church who was on 
the other side of the issue. For example, I remember teaching a Bible study one time, again, my first year of ordination, and at this very same church. We were studying a section of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount, which is a huge piece of Scripture in the book of Matthew, spanning all the way from chapter 5 through chapter 7. And on this day, we'd come to Matthew 5, 38 and 39. And in it, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the left cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. As I was talking about this teaching from Jesus, a woman raised her hand and asked, Would Jesus ever use force or violence to vanquish an enemy? I was young and I said something I believed to be true, but didn't think twice at the moment about whether or not it was controversial. I said, I don't think there's any doubt that Jesus was a pacifist. Suddenly, another woman in the class spoke out loudly and with more than a little hostility. I could not disagree more. I don't think Jesus was a wimp. I was absolutely confused, and I will say this about myself today. I'm not a pacifist, not because I don't believe in pacifism, quite the opposite, because I don't believe I have enough strength and courage to make that claim about myself. Being a pacifist requires an inner resolve that I would love to have. So when she equated the word pacifism with wimps, I was genuinely shocked. Remember 1989, the student-led protest in China where they were seeking democratic reforms and they were asking for change from a government that was not and still is not known for dealing kindly with vocal protesters. The most dramatic image of these events was the one of a lone protester who, in the midst of a sudden and violent crackdown on the students, went to stand in front of a column of tanks advancing through Tiananmen Square. That dramatic, courageous, heroic image, that was pacifism. Think of Mahatma Gandhi, a courageous pacifist who put himself on the line in a truly fearless way in the struggle for the independence of India. And what about Martin Luther King Jr.? He was a pacifist, often placing his body in harm's way and allowing himself to endure abuse at the hands of others, committing himself to never answering hate with hate or answering violence with violence. And yes, I believe Jesus was about peaceful change in the world. When he was arrested, there were those who wanted to grab weapons and resist his arrest. And in that moment, Jesus said to them, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus was telling his disciples that the things he needed to achieve must be achieved by peaceful means. Think for a moment about what Gandhi, King, and Jesus have in common. They knew the path they had chosen placed them in mortal danger And it is not surprising that of these three pacifists, none died of old age. All three died at the hands of others. I can't.
can't imagine calling any of these three men wimps. No, Jesus was not a wimp. Okay, so let's talk a bit about the culture that shapes a person to believe that if Jesus was the ultimate man of peace, then that would make him a wimp. I think it's safe to say that if you want to look at the cultural beliefs of a society in which you live, a great place to start is by examining the movies which both form and reflect our beliefs. And I would argue, and I'm not the first to do so, that there is no movie genre that is as distinctly American as the Western. I grew up watching Westerns, and I always was a huge fan of them. As a kid, I just loved the idea that the hero identified a hardship normally an injustice and through grit and courage stood alone to battle the injustice and bring about good for the entire community. It is, I guess, no wonder that in a nation that has seen itself as strongly Christian, these movies became so popular. After all, didn't Jesus come into the world to stand with courage against the powers of evil? And when no one else would stand with him through grit, courage, and personal sacrifice, he faced down the challenge single-handedly and made things right for others. So Jesus' story is the ultimate Western narrative, right? I'm going to use two Westerns to talk about our society, and let's see where it takes us. The first movie I want to explore is from 1985, and it's titled Pale Rider. This stars Clint Eastwood, who's arguably one of the two most iconic Western stars in cinema history. The other, of course, is John Wayne. Pale Rider begins with a classic setup, the powerful and evil landowner who owns the local town and most of the things around it is trying to acquire the claims of a small group of prospectors who live nearby. His tactics are fear, intimidation, and abuse. And towards the beginning of the movie, a prospector who is in town to get supplies winds up being attacked by four of the thugs who work for the bad guy rich man. Quietly, there appears a lone man on a horse just outside of town. Then suddenly, he's in the midst of the fight, never saying a word. Clint Eastwood's character, who doesn't have a name throughout the movie, has picked up an axe handle to defend the prospector. And though the four henchmen all have axe handles themselves, he single-handedly and easily defeats them, leaving all four unconscious on the ground. After the fight, he goes to return the axe handle to the barrel outside the store from which he borrowed it, and he says his first line of the entire movie while looking at the axe handle, nothing like a good piece of hickory. This movie is in many ways the cinematic capturing of what we believe about America. Clint Eastwood plays a character who, though he has no name, turns out to be a preacher. The fascinating thing about this movie is that the viewer is intended to understand that the pale rider, Eastwood's character, may even be heaven-sent. The title of the movie itself is intended as a biblical reference. The four riders of the apocalypse found in the book of Revelation, the fourth of whom is described as being a pale rider. This man is mysterious unpredictable and dangerous while still being a preacher in this movie. The message of the movie is clear. The pale rider is on the side of good, 
but is willing to use violence against the forces of evil. This is a classic trope of Westerns. The hero's a good guy on the side of good, but has just enough devil in him to defeat the forces with their own tools. Westerns in general teach the same lesson again and again. Good cannot defeat evil with good. The side of good will always need a warrior who is willing to get a little dirty, to fight fire with fire in order to bring about justice and safety for those who are oppressed. Matter of fact, I would argue that in Eastwood's movie, The Pale Rider, the rider himself is intended to be a personification of America. At the beginning of the movie, in the first fight scene, he literally speaks softly and wields a big stick. He is a figure sent by God into a troubled world. The figure has almost unlimited power and is on the side of good, but is not so constrained by any particular moral code as to be hindered in bringing about justice in the world. That, I would suggest, is exactly the America that most of us have come to believe we are and that we're even called to be. The next movie I want to talk about is another Western. This one was released in 1969 and stars Glenn Ford. This Western is strangely named Heaven with a Gun. And the poster for this movie has this tagline. Jim Killian killed like an artist. This is the story of his masterpiece. Which fascinatingly isn't even to me a very accurate description of the plot of the movie. It begins with a classic Western conflict, the cattle ranchers against the sheep herders. Matter of fact, this movie forces in almost every Western cliche. It has cattlemen oppressing the sheep herders. It has a beautiful young Native American woman who's lost in the white world and being abused. It has the town madam who has a heart of gold. It has a fight over the lone watering hole, and it has a struggle between violence and peace. Into this town comes a new player, Glenn Ford's character, Jim Killian, and Killian is an ex-gunslinger who has become a preacher. He plans to start a church in this town, and he hopes to create a place of refuge in his church and consequently bring peace between the sides. Interestingly, unlike many Westerns where the hero has sworn off violence only to reaffirm the need for it later, Killian has never sworn it off. There is a point in the movie in which he faces down some of the rancher's men and is asked by them, how is it that you, a preacher, carry a gun? And his answer is, everyone is welcome and safe in my church. The gun is to take on anyone who challenges that. How classically Western, the peaceful gospel being protected by the gun What is fascinating about this movie is it follows the predictable Western storyline. Eventually, something happens which is so horrible, which is terrible. The bad guys burn down the church and kill some people that it pushes the preacher over the line. It is time for him to take a stand and enforce justice in the community. The Western way. As he's strapping on his gun with a hardened resolve in his eye, the saloon madam soon stops him. She tells him the time has come for him to make a choice. She says, you can't live trying to straddle the world between gunslinger and preacher. You need to be one or the other. 
And she points out, because trying to be both is creating your own kind of hell. And ultimately, it's also leaving the people of the town confused and lost. You need to make a choice. Now, the first time I ever saw this movie, I knew what was going to happen. He was going to defeat those who were oppressing the innocent. He was going to kill all of the bad guys. And in the end, when he had another confrontation with the woman, after it was all over, he was going to say something like this, a man's got to be who he is. I finally realized this is who I am. The major showdown of the movie comes when the cattlemen are planning to ambush the sheep herders at the watering hole that's available to both of them. Ultimately, the preacher does something surprising. He leaves his gun behind. He leads the people of the church and the town into the countryside to place themselves as shields between the sheep herders and the cattlemen. In the end, he wins peace for everyone through peace. No one has to die. Of all the Westerns I've ever watched, an untold number place the hero in a situation where he must choose between his desire to live a peaceful life and the impending crisis that approaches that appears to need violence to solve the problem. The classic Western cliche is that the hero needs to adopt the way of violence briefly to achieve peace that is needed. The poorly named movie Heaven with a Gun is the only one that I can think of where the hero saves the day by choosing peace. I think the first movie I discussed, Pale Rider, accurately captures much of the American narrative as we want to see it. What I want to be clear about is our cultural propensity to want to blend peace and the sword. To want to mix together our faith with just a little violence and hatred to get the job done. And I'll openly admit, I too find this an alluring narrative, and I have to remind myself frequently, it is certainly enticing and seductive, but it is not the way of God. Now, I can't speak for other faiths, but I can speak of Christianity, and there is No reading of the Gospels in which any of us can come away with a version of Jesus who would affirm mingling violence or hatred with the Gospel. A major point to having a faith is that you have guiding principles. I'm not sure any of us feel the need for guiding principles during peaceful and easy times, but we claim them during those times because it's so, well, easy. But our tenets of belief are not just to guide us when life is easy. They are most importantly there for the times of conflict and extreme duress. Principles, beliefs, are not worth a damn if we throw them away when things get difficult. This is true for people of faith, and I want to add, it's true for people of a nation as well. The reasons we have laws and rights and a constitution is not for the easy times, but to guide us through the difficult moments. We are at a particularly divided moment in our nation today, and there is a growing belief that disturbs me. We live in a time in which we believe, and this is increasingly true of both people on the left and the right of the political spectrum, we believe that we need to break our own cherished 
moral codes in order to protect our moral principles. Whatever side you're on, the following statement is still true. We have a tendency to believe that our goals are so noble that our methods of achieving them are therefore irrelevant as long as we succeed. I can tell you flat out and without a second of doubt that this is not how Jesus did it. If Jesus taught us anything, it is that how we achieve our goals is every bit as important as the goals themselves. Jesus didn't just say, believe in God. He said, believe in God and follow me. If you believe in me and follow me, you will bear fruit. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and to bear fruit? Well, you certainly aren't going to find the answer to that question in a Western. But you can find clear clues to the answer to that question in Scripture. Let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount again. Jesus tells us, do not judge so that you may not be judged. Again, another portion from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells a story of what it'll be like when he returns to earth. And he says he will be looking for people who bore fruit. He'll be looking for people who fed the hungry, gave drink to the thirsty, welcomed the stranger, clothed the naked, tended to the sick, visited the imprisoned. And notice, and this is really important in this passage, notice there are no caveats on any of those. It doesn't say to pay attention to only the hungry who have worked really hard and deserve a hand up. It doesn't say or welcome the stranger who looks like us and speaks our language. It doesn't say tend the sick people from your own congregation, or to visit the people who are innocently in prison. It doesn't add any of those caveats. We are told to pay attention to the people who are regarded as the least in our world, and in doing so, we will be tending to God. In Christianity, we look to the book of Isaiah as being the harbinger of the coming of the Messiah to tell us who the Messiah will be. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. This is the description of who we can expect the Messiah to be. This is the description of who we understood Jesus to be. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us, Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace. God gave us Jesus, and for Christians, in him, all divine authority, power, and strength reside, and his way is unwaveringly, unquestionably, and eternally the way of peace and love. That's all for today. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. And please feel free to get in touch with me through email. I invite you to follow me on Twitter also. Just remember that both are SkyPilot with three T's. That's S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T-T-T. My email is skypilot at gmail.com, and my Twitter handle is at skypilot. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot FaithQuest. 
I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions. Thank you.